Welcome to Earful of Dirt, the Major League Rugby Podcast. Each episode, your hosts bring you news, views, and abuse from America's professional rugby union, along with all the latest on the USA national team. Now, with all that said, let's get on with the show. And we're live. Welcome to the Earful of Dirt Podcast. I am not Aaron Castro. Aaron Castro has a family thing to to work out. Um, so I will be your host this week. I am Joshua Fredland. You can find me at, as Castro likes to say, lead speak Josh Fred. Uh, with me is Craig Gridelli, normal co-host of the week. Um, you can find him at MM Fly Off on Twitter. And then the other uh, randomly rotating co-host who never knows when we're going to be on until the day of the show, uh, <laughs> Poach. And you can find him at Poacher Rugby. How are you guys doing this week? Doing great. What a great week. Today is Cinco de Mayo. Happy Cinco de Mayo to our listeners. Uh, also, my son's second birthday today. And uh, of course, yesterday was Star Wars Day. So uh, exciting time for me. Uh, and I think some of, some of you out there, so we might, uh, we might sneak in a, a couple of minutes about Star Wars at the very end here if uh, you so decide to keep listening. Yeah. So uh, for, for the past 10 days, uh, I have been watching uh, my girlfriend's hellhound. Um, she, she was on a cross country trip and she has a half husky, half German shepherd. That's extremely needy, extremely vocal, just on the verge of human speech. I swear to God. Um, so this is like the, 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 the last 15 minutes is the most amount of time I've spent in my own apartment uh, in that time. And it's just kind of good to be home. It's good to see the girlfriend, but really Really good just to be in my own freaking bed. Can we get the dog doing MLR broadcast? Because, uh, you know, we, we, uh, we're looking for some added talent in that pool. I, I, I mean, like, honestly, the, the thing probably could. I think if I, if I slipped her, you know, so some Adderall or something like that, it was, she would just start speaking in full sentences, but would never do that to a dog. Josh, how was your week? You're, how do you feel about being in the captain's chair tonight? You know, it's weird. I think I think we always we always kind of talked about this, and so it's it's interesting to at least feel it. Um, but we will see how it goes. I will mess up at some point, so don't hold it against me. <laughs> what do you mean, don't hold it against you, dude? Have you ever been in a rugby like you know, like like you know you know environment? We're we're totally gonna rag on you. We're gonna support you the whole way, but. No, no, no. You'll be hearing about your mistakes on the uh, on on the whatever messenger app that is that we use. WhatsApp. There we go. Concussion yeah. brain. <laughs> All right, we're just gonna get into the reviews. Uh, Liam, you want to talk about uh, New England, San Diego? Uh, yes. Well, I, I, I suppose, man, this is a lot shorter of an intro than Aaron usually uh, has running, but you messed <laughs> hey, it up already, Josh. <laughs> 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 This is 15 minutes too short. <laughs> All right. We usually have anyway, a five-minute segment about sports law at this point, uh, <laughs> or the nuances of the national governing body and how it ties into the Olympic, uh, yeah, the Olympic committee. I mean, I mean, if if we want to extend it out, we can. Um, it's Lions Tour announcement eve. It's it's also freaking Cinco de Mayo, man. I got plans as soon as this thing ends. All right. <laughs> I got yeah. to drink. I got tacos to eat. All right. So it's all on to me to kick this thing off. 
Anyway, over the weekend, it, uh, we had a final result in a clash of East versus West. New England 33, San Diego 17. New England now sitting with 16 table points at 3-3. Three and three. San Diego sitting at 2-5 and five and looking well outside the playoff picture of the West. So this game was a must win for both sides, but <laughs> of course only only one side ended up winning, didn't they? Anyway, for New England, it was, uh, you know, the, the must win aspect, it was to stay competitive in the Eastern Conference logjam. For San Diego, it was to try to preserve even a monicum of hope that the Western Conference's two seed was still within reach. But now, when you're looking at that division, it's hard to imagine anyone other than either Utah or Austin Austin clinching the number two seed. Now, the one seed, as we all know, essentially belongs to L.A. Uh, so, New England, like I said, they are now stuck in a modest uh, logjam in, in the Eastern uh, Conference. Uh, with them, ATL and Toronto all sitting at 16 table points apiece, with the top of the pack featuring New York and NOLA at 19 points apiece. So, there's still plenty of playoff hope alive within that division amongst you know a whole bunch of teams. As for this past weekend, uh, New England, they extinguished a lot of the aforementioned San Diegan hope. San Diegan, San Diegan, whatever Ron Burgundy said. Anyway, they extinguished a lot of that playoff hope within the first 16 minutes of the match, going up 21 points to nil thanks to two John Poland tries. And of course, good old Dougie Fife, who currently sits in second place in the league in terms of tries scored. Uh, I think John Poland has shown some of the most marked improvement as the season has progressed in terms of scrum halves in the league. Uh, his quick ball rate is rising without any ne necessarily sacrificing any of his accuracy. Uh, and as you can see by that first half stat line against San Diego, he's becoming as much of a threat carrying the ball as Boyer is down in Houston. So this game featured a lot of what... Uh, has defined each of these teams thus far this season. New England, they displayed some of its uh, some of their stellar red zone defense, while San Diego crumbled within it as their foots gradually filled up with bullets from their own guns. Uh, despite only committing nine total penalties on the day for San Diego, two less than the Jacks actually at eleven. Uh, the issue with San Diego's horrible gain line rate, the ability to get, by which I mean for the people uh, listening who might not know, that's like the ability to get past the initial ruck essentially. Um, but they were, they had a horrible gain line raid while playing inside of their own territory, which led to them posting only a 46% territory rate despite controlling 61% of the total possession in the game. Uh, and those aforementioned nine penalties for San Diego, that's what ended up being the true dagger in their heart because New England ended up not, ne not even needing to control the overall possession because unlike last week versus D.C., they were actually able to capitalize on instances of good field possession handed to them in this one. The game wasn't all that bad from San Diego. I don't want to make it sound like it was a total shit show. Uh, the second half definitely saw an uptick in urgency from guys like Osberger, Matia, Cecil Africa. Um, Cecil Africa, love him as a player. Uh, unfortunately, he didn't really have the best day coming off his boot. Uh, I think he had two instances of where he kicked beyond the 22, and so the ball in that instance comes back to where it was kicked. Um, the San Diego, they were definitely missing Joe Peterson, especially in a time where it seems like the narrative around this team is that the leadership is in flux. Uh, and they're surely going to be missing uh, Dylan Oddsley this week as he recovers from surgery. So uh, overall, I love the bounce back from the Free Jacks, um, you know, from, from, from a loss last week against D.C. Um, and prior, prior uh, the week prior to that, lost to NOLA. 
But I'd like to see more wins back-to-back uh, from them as the playoffs near. Because at the moment, I think New England is like the epitome of the age-old saying, you are what your record says you are, which is a 500 team. Not too good, not too bad. Uh, as for San Diego, the talent on the roster is not matching the product on the field. And at this point, I'm not sure that there's necessarily enough time left to shake off the funk and get in the Western playoff race. So better luck next year, San Diegans. San Diegans. Yeah. <laughs> New, England is, New England are so big. You know, it's like, but, uh, you know, you, you talked about them, San Diego not making the game line. It, it seemed like it's just because every time they had a carry, just a much larger free jack was there to level the ball carry. It was almost... Dude, Josh Lawson, kid. Josh freaking Lawson there. <laughs> it's all he was playing board. against his There's brother for the first time, actually. Fun fact. Oh, I'm sorry. What happened? Played uh, for the first time? Yeah, Josh Larson, um, captain of the New England Free Jacks. His brother, I'm blanking on his first name right now, was uh, was Travis. on the 23. 23- what? Travis. Travis. Yeah, yeah, true. Yeah, the, the Larson brothers for the first time since what Josh called on social media the backyard bowl or the backyard championship uh, played against each other in a rugby game. Yeah, wow. Yeah, I mean, so I don't know if, if any of you are old enough to remember the movie Little Giants. Um, but, you know, essentially the, the setting of that movie is a, a tiny team of misfits or the Giants and they play like the cool kids, the big athletes. Uh, and the guys are much larger, and they just push the little giants around. In the end, the little giants win. But well, this weekend, the little giants didn't win. But I mean, that was the sense of it. It was like a much just felt like a bigger, meaner team was, uh, you know, was just there stopping at whatever attacks San Diego tried to mount. So I, mean, I think that's what Newland do best. They're just they're just big, disruptive presences out there that. Mm-hmm. You know, if you want to try to mount some kind of attack, you have to pay the price physically because you have to come through what they're what they're putting in your way, and it's uh, a lot of teams struggle with it. And like you said, it, there's a lot of big guys on that uh, on, on that uh, you know on that roster. One of whom is Vili Tolotau, um, who I have mixed feelings about at this point. I think he's a pretty punishing ball carrier. He can definitely tackle, but he cannot throw into the goddamn line out. Yeah, he's you, know, heard, you guys heard my opinions on, on, on the group chat earlier this weekend. So Yeah, I love Billy in open play, but yeah, he's, he's definitely uh, still working on that throw, huh? <laughs> he's like airmailing uh, everyone. Uh, well, so. there, there was that I mean, one. There was the one throw I saw he had. He threw it like directly to the outside shoulder of the New England uh, jumper. Yeah. 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 I, I wrote at least one or two not straights. Yeah. I mean, he, everyone I'm sure remembers he was always, I think, listed as a possible hooker, but he primarily played flanker for Seattle. So this is certainly looks like a project in New England to really make him a hooker. He wasn't starting at the beginning of the year. He was coming off the bench. Um, so we'll see how the product's going, but throwing – doesn't seem to be quite there yet. You know, it, uh, Liam, you talk about saying yeah, we couldn't get the game line. They had one player who was able to get the game line all day, and that was uh, Tavitha Tamalau, and they rarely went to him. I think Castro mentioned it in our um, in our chat. Is like, why don't you give him the ball more? And that that was 
He's as big as the New England players. <laughs> I know, but it, it was one of those things where I think San Diego, they, they saw their back line as, as a strength. They saw their ability to get line speed as a strength. And it, it was one of those things where it's like, you know, give the ball to Derrick Henry. Stop trying to force force targets to A.J. Brown, uh, for those that speak NFL, right? It, it, it was just, you know, a, 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 an aspect of the game plan that clearly wasn't working, but they were hard-headed in terms of their desire to see it through. And like you said, Tamalau uh, was one of the more productive players on the day who definitely he, – uh, he, he, had, he had at least two line breaks. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm mildly sure. I watched the game earlier today. But uh, – yeah, I, I I don't know what's up with the San Diego squad. I, like, like I said, like in my in my spiel, there's so much talent on this team that the the product that they're putting on the field right now is kind of astonishing. All right, so well, moving on, we got L- the Giltinis beating the Old Glory DC forty-seven to seventeen. Um, I think we all knew this scoreline was coming. Um, LA does most of their damage in the first 20 minutes. Uh, we saw in this game that LA didn't score for the first 10 minutes. So, you know, we thought maybe it would be different. And then uh, Langy Langy scored at the, was that the um, JP Grubber kick? Do either of you remember? No, it wasn't. Uh, he scored off the Adam Ashley Cooper, I'm not going to be tackled, break through the middle. And then he off, you know, then he passed it down to Langy Langy who finished trying. Yeah, after that, it was open season on Old Glory. Um, at halftime, it was 33-3. to So, you know, Old Glory at least tried to make a game of it at the end, but didn't do that much. Um, saw the old man, Jose Colonisau, get a try in the corner. And then young DeMonte Noble got, got his own as well. Um, yeah. Colonisau, their champ, huh? I mean, he was, wasn't even with the team at the beginning of the year. They were getting beat up by LA, and it was as if he said, "All right, give me the ball." And he I, he must have had every other carry for like a six minute period. I mean, these are balls usually you would think a forward would be taking right off the scrum. It was he was just like put the team on the back. Eventually, did score. He, he took two quick taps on his own on penalties. The second of which he scored a try. It was like he was like, you know what, f this, I'm taking over here. Uh, and, you know, maybe it lasted five minutes. But in that five minutes, he was really uh, playing uh, pretty impressively. Um, but, I mean, not, not enough against the Giltinis. Hey, guys, so let, let me ask you this. When you look at the, the L.A. Giltinis roster, or, or sorry, when you think of the L.A. Giltinis roster, I'm, I'm assuming somebody like Adam Ashley Cooper is, like, the first one to immediately come to mind. Am I right? Him or Gitter. Yeah. He's one of the yeah. most famous people, along with Guitar. True. True. So, but at the same time, look, the, all those guys are in mid to late 30s at this point. And it seems to me that LA might have this very dominant run here in season one with a lot of these older veteran guys who, who are much more apt to getting in sync with one another on, you know, on, on shorter terms. But then you look a lot. You look at a lot, a lot of these other teams who do have that younger core of players who are starting to ascend. In particular, uh, in, I think of in particular like Austin and uh, New England. So, what does the future of LA look like? Because at, at this point, I'm kind of writing them off as the most likely Shield champions at this point. But uh, I'm 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 not seeing a lot of people on their roster that's setting a foundation for a future. Well, I, I yeah. think you, I think you have a couple. 
I know um, Vailanu, um, Padivan, if he stays. Christian Rodriguez is a good up-and-coming uh, scrum half, U.S. qualified scrum half. And then you also have uh, Ryan James on the wing as well. I mean, I know they're not, you know, I know it's only a few pieces, but I, I feel like they got a good mix of, you know, young talent and old veterans and um I actually yeah. think Goddard, you know, Harrison Goddard is one of the keys to that team. I think he's only 22. But but that said, I mean, they are overall a pretty old team, and it, clearly it would be very easy to hand them the shield today, and they're certainly playing by far the best. Though, you know, I don't know. Maybe I'm just – I like to be a, a contrarian, but uh, they are old, as you observe, and the season's long, and older teams maybe wear a little worse – throughout the season and it's going to get really hot. Uh, you know, they have to be Australian for the most part. They're in their older internationals or at least get and Adam actually Cooper. So maybe they're used to the heat a little bit more, but uh, you know, when it's 85 degrees and hundred percent humidity and it's week 14, you know, it may not be as easy to play at the pace they play. Uh, so we'll see. Well, I'm, I'm not giving them the shield just yet. So let me bring this comment up from Benjamin Haswell. It's uh, it seems LA is capable of producing the complete game. Every other team shows potential, but not complete product. And I, I kind of want to take this comment in two different directions if we could, because, you know, um, does, we all know that COVID had an impact on preseason. Um, LA was one of the few teams that was able to get together consistently. I mean, I think uh, they had, they had what, a 30 a month uh, training camp in Maui. How much of an imp- I think we've discussed this before, but I mean, it almost we almost have to bring it up again. Is that playing an important factor in, in how good they are at this moment? It absolutely is, and I think where the edge comes in, um, it's not so much about being the most fit. It's not necessarily about running the fastest forty time. I think it's the the comfort level within the team system. I think that. Uh, you know, LA is playing very efficiently and they're, they're, the players are getting to where they're supposed to be. They're finding the proper channels. They're opening up the, the, the proper gaps in terms of how their passing game uh, goes. And I think it's just that th- those it's, it, it's, it's the finer, it's the finer details that they've become more attuned with as a squad that they can operate together without necessarily having to bark at one another over crowd noise or have, or having to, you know, reevaluate um, like how they're doing things on the fly. I think it's a lot more fluid for them in terms of the actual system and the game plan on how, on how to beat other teams. Whereas I think a lot of these other teams spend a lot of time just trying to get in rugby shape, being able to tackle and pass efficiently after spending months on the couch. So they do, there is that, you know, there is that disparity in terms, <clears throat> sorry, there is that, ter- that, that, that disparity in terms of how efficiently these teams are operating alongside one another, because we've seen some teams give LA like a run for their money and ser- through certain phases. We've seen them, you know, like, like, like have, have pressure applied upon them. We've seen LA give up, you know, like bad tries and have defensive lapses. They're not invincible, but again, it's just that, that, that degree of efficiency that allows them, you know, to maintain stamina that allows them to, you know, keep mixing things up because it's not going to confuse the players on their squad, you know, like, you know, in, in doing so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with that. Uh, assessment of their game, though it's not super clear to me that it's because of the preseason. I mean, they're they're clearly 
orchestrating the most complete, dynamic, advanced game. I mean, they're the way they're playing. I mean, it looks like it'd be impressive at any club, you know, level program in any country. I mean, it's not just an MLR. I mean, they're the, the way they attack and have the pullback option, and like they they do it in every play, and they sell the charge. I mean, it, it's really good. Uh, and they did have a preseason, so maybe those things are connected. They're probably connected in some degree, but I mean, we've had in previous years every team had a preseason, and no one has come out looking like this. Uh, so, I mean, it, is it the preseason? The preseason gave them the time, I guess, to get to where they are. But there's got to be more to it, right? There's other. There's got to be other key ingredients because other than this year, we've had every team has had a preseason. We've never seen anything. I don't think approaching this level of. Uh, just skill yeah, that they're playing with today. Well, but the one comparable instance that I can personally think of is Glendale Raptors in season one. And if you think about that roster, that roster was one of the most dominant clubs in the, uh, in either the PRP or the ARP or even the red river conference at, at one randomly one year. Um, and a lot of those players were, you know, were, had been together for two or three years and then made the jump together to the MLR. And that's when we saw that wicked dominant run by Glendale in the opening weeks. Of, it was only like a seven-game season, I'm pretty sure. But they, they didn't really start to crumble until the playoffs when stuff like fatigue and injury started to set in and that opened the gate for Seattle to win. So I, it's not – believe me, L.A. is doing much better than that Glendale team. I think they stomped their boots into the ground, but somewhat comparable. And, again, they have that, you know, that familiarity with one another between those two squads. And that actually leads in, into my next point. Um, we all we all saw that. Uh, I know. I think we all saw that uh, Darren Coleman got a contract extension, um, and that led to, I guess, a little bit of conversation on the ML Rugby um, subreddit. If you would like to join us in conversation over there, it's reddit.com backslash r backslash ML Rugby. Um, but to conversation of is it the players or is it Coleman's coaching? Again, I, I think it's. It's hard, I guess, from the outside to say, but it's, it seems like it's somebody's coaching. I mean, it could be the coach. It could be the veteran players, uh, probably some combination of the two. But I definitely think that there's a leadership that has got these guys organized and playing together at a level higher than we've seen to date in MLR. Yeah, and, uh, and again, going back to the fact that <clears> – <throat> again, sorry – Going back to the fact that a lot of the guys on that L.A. team are veterans who are, you know, not only have been playing the game for a long time, but are very accomplished. There's World Cup appearances, victories, you know, like playing a Super League championships and stuff like that. You need a certain degree of experience, of respect, of just general presence to bring a guy to bring a group of alpha males together like that to play coherently. Where we see right now we're seeing in San Diego and Houston two teams that are full of alpha male playmakers that are not exactly operating, you know, if, if efficiently uh, together. And I, I, I don't want, I'm not, I'm not trying to put all of that on, onto the coaching of, of Houston and San Diego. Um, but, uh, you know, but at the same time, I definitely think, you know, Coleman deserves a degree of credit for being able to bring all those personalities together to be the squad that they're, that they're playing like. Fair enough. All right. Liam, what happened with Toronto and Nola? What happened with Toronto and Nola, he asks. So, 
Toronto, uh, we were we were we were having a discussion in the EOD group chat. Who are playoff contenders? Who are shield contenders? And me and Castor had a, a somewhat disagreement about whether or not Toronto was a shield contender versus playoff contender. Um, and to me, a game like this puts puts a lot of doubt into my head that, that Toronto is a true shield contender. Um, however, I would definitely say both Toronto and NOLA, huge shot at the playoffs, especially NOLA, on, or especially both those teams being in the Eastern Conference where, like I said, it's that huge-ass log jam. Um, so anyway, the game, uh, NOLA uh, be, uh, beat up on – not beat up on Toronto. NOLA beat Toronto 22-14. to 14. Um, to and uh, they are now sitting at second place with 19 points in the Eastern Conference, uh, just behind Rooney, who sits at four and two in terms of total win loss record. So, the early Toronto phase play I felt like was great, uh, especially when they were moving inside Nola territory. I felt like their line speed and pacing did a really good job of opening up lanes for good old Mr. Montero, who I believe is kind of like the Dougie Fife of Canada. Anyway, <laughs> their, attack, their attack was operating so efficiently that the NOLA defensive shift wasn't able to keep up, and they gave up plenty of meters along points early on, leading to a 14-0 deficit at halftime in favor of Toronto. However, along comes the concept that we see every year in every sport. One team goes up on another early. Next thing you know, the foot gets taken off the gas, as was the case with the Toronto Arrows. Where have I seen that before? 28 to 3. That's what it, never mind. So now I'm not suggesting that the players weren't putting forth a good effort, you know, on any front, because it was clear that they were that Toronto was making Nola fight for the hard for the gain line. Um, you know, there was a lot of sort of lateral movement early on with the with the Nola attack. Uh, but at the same time, I felt like that possession time that Nola uh, got from that uh, strategy was the ability to iron out the wrinkles as they played. So they ended up en- ending the game with about a 63% total possession advantage in favor of the Nola Gold. Uh, that extra possession for Nola in the second half didn't leave a whole lot of room for Toronto to hammer in what could have been the final nail of the coffin. You know, you go up 21 to nothing on any team, it's going to be really hard to come back. Just ask San Diego. <laughs> um, so anyway, the end result of not being able to put the final nail in that coffin was the seemingly cold corpse of Nola breaking out of the casket to cap an eight-point win. Uh, in terms of players on the field, a pair of Nola's forwards stood out to me. First being Cam Dolan, who, dude, is just one of the probably top ten players in MLR, if not top five. Um, he's somebody who who could definitely be counted on to get points when there's a lot of traffic inside of the twenty-two. Uh, we saw him score off a rolling ball earlier. Um, there, or, uh, right, uh, there was a first score of the second half that began the comeback. Uh, then there's of course Patty O'Toole. Uh, product of Ireland, who, despite coming off the bench, was probably one of the better hookers all week, and is definitely more, uh, more and more of an offensive threat um, at his position as well compared to others in the league. Uh, for Toronto, someone who's already been mentioned here is Manuel Montero. Uh, when Toronto's executing well, uh, I think they accomplished what I described earlier, which is an efficient, fast attack that gets the ball into the outside channels faster than the than the defense can actually react. Uh, we saw Nola have a lot of trouble with that. Uh, and Montero, I think he possesses the necessary necessary sort of short range speed and physicality to make those runs and dives in the outside corner of the angle 
Um, just one of those guys you want you you want to have to finish off, uh, you know, like some uh, some good line passing. Uh, so with this win, Nola has officially established themselves as a legit contender in the East. Uh, like I said, they're sitting at second place right now in terms of the standings with 19 points. Uh, meanwhile, while Toronto certainly isn't out of range in the playoffs, they face some of the same questions I think that Utah faces in terms of their ability to finish a game in the second half. So, like, there's a little bit more than half the season left to go, so each of these teams has uh, has room for improvement and you know, it has time for improvement as well, especially in the Eastern Conference. So, it, we couple just to revisit a couple of things we discussed last week. This was an eighty-degree game. You know, eighty degrees in the South. A team that's made up largely of Canadians. Did that wear on their ability to you know maintain their their level of play throughout the game? That's just an open sort of rhetorical question for now. Two, I mean, I don't want to beat this dead horse every week. But is Damien Stevens not the difference maker for Nola? I mean, Holden Younger's in the game. Nola cannot score a point. I think it was like the 60th minute or something when Damien Stevens games on. Nola probably takes the He's the, the most overrated scrum half in the league. And I, I, I've met Holden um, like on one or two occasions. Great guy. One of the most overrated players on that squad. Is, is it a strategy that they say, okay, Dan Stevens is quick. You know, he's, he's a rapid guy. Um, he's coming in when the other teams are now tired. Yeah. The defense is tired. And because it's like, he's been coming off the bench most of the season. I think he started once or maybe twice. Um, he started last week. Or started, yeah. I think and maybe the week before that, I can't recall, but at least once, um, but mostly he's been coming off the bench and it's been very effective, right? He comes in and they score a boatload of points. The game he started, they kind of sucked, right? So, like, I don't, is this a strategy? As they say, okay, he's he's best employed this way. It's not a strategy I normally would like. You know, I think you should play your best players for as many minutes as possible. But they seem to have something going that when he comes off the bench, you know, he comes with, you know, 15 points right away. Uh, so, I don't, know, I don't know if that's a strategy or just luck, but... It, well, it, it seems to me, like, um, the, when they do bring Stevens off the bench, like, what they want to... What they're trying to do is they're trying to beat you down physically before they bring him in, and then they're trying to speed up the game to try to break you. And, and they try to break you down physically, and they try to break you mentally with their speed as well. It's working. I mean, yeah. You know, again, I don't know if that's the, the long-term plan. Like, I got... My instinct says he should be starting. He's the better scrum half, but uh, there, there definitely is something to that, you know, that change of pace as, as Ben Hoswell saying on the comments there. And then, and then I guess they, they did something different this week. They put uh, Carl Meyer at 10 and started Hanel Dirksen at 15. I know, I know we all, I know a lot of people like to, to rag on uh, Timothy Guillemont. Do you think that actually made a difference starting Carl at 10 and keeping it and um, keeping his no, out of the back? Line? I don't. I mean, Carl, well, yeah, put it this way Carl was 10 for the whole first 60 minutes of the game and Nola couldn't do anything. Uh, I mean, I think Carl Meyer is good, but I'm not sure that him being full back to 10 made much of a difference. Um, yeah, he's, he's, he's better really, off the than anything. Yeah, I was going to say, he's really a kicking, you know, his asset, I think, is his kick. Um, Actually, double checking, he came off in the twenty seventh minute. Carl Meyer did. 
Yeah, Damien Stevens did all the kicking in the second half. He did, yeah, I know he did the kicking after he came in. I don't know who did the kicking then from minute 27 on to whenever Damien Stevens entered, but. No, and they didn't score or attempt. There you go. Uh, so, and then who, who played fly half when, uh, when he came out? Uh, uh, Gimon did. Okay. Uh, I have no problem with Gimon, you know. I think he's had saying. good games and bad games in his uh, – he's been around since year one, right? He was in Austin. He came in, like, later half of the first season for Austin. Yeah, um, no. Uh, uh, yeah, Tim Guillemot, Thierry Dapin originally brought him in from France to play for the Austin Huns when they were doing, like, that weird semi-professional, you know, uh, like, thing the year uh, before MLR really got started. Um, and then, then of course, the Austin Huns were like, we're not joining MLR. So then it became the Austin Elite, and they were the Austin Herd. And then, you know, however, uh, how, how, so yeah, he's, he's had a pretty interesting journey down there in the South uh, playing rugby. Yeah. So I have no problem with him. Uh, but I, yeah, I don't think either he nor Carl Meyer as a 10 are creating many opportunities for NOLA. I mean, they, they seem adequate to me, but not play, you know, play creating tens like a Jason Robertson. Um, so I, I think Steven seems to be the key. Devin, you know, Devin short played well uh, this week for Nola Toronto. I thought played fine too, but it, you know, they just, they faded towards the end of the game and it just seemed like Nola wanted it more in the back half. You know, maybe they felt they needed to win more. They were home. I don't know, but uh, I think these teams are both good. Uh, so, you know, I don't think either should be disappointed with how they played. Uh, you know, fair points from both. Craig, your favorite part of the week and your most hair pulling out part of the week. <laughs> yeah, not really my favorite part of the week. Uh, so in New York on Sunday evening, Eastern time, uh, s- escaped with a win in Seattle, 23 to 21. Oh boy. Uh, you know, New York, first of all, New York has always seemed to struggle with Seattle. They just, Seattle matches up well against them. Um, I'm not even sure they've ever even they ever beat Seattle before, um, maybe once before. But uh, you know they're they're a team that Seattle uh, they don't play well against, uh, especially West Coast trips are hard for anyone. This was Seattle's first home game, so Starfire was as alive as it could be with its partial capacity. But you could hear them on the TV cheering. It was it was the most seemed to be the most legit crowd noise. I'd heard so far this season um, and it started great for Seattle, mostly because New York was just completely grassing the ball left and right. Um, I mean, I'm, you know, it was shocking, I guess, to watch for a bit because it seemed like every third pass out of New York hands was hitting the grass. I don't know if it's because the sun was in their eyes, uh, you know, given the time of day, uh, it really did seem to kind of shift in the second half when they had changed direction of attack, but, um, really, Seattle did a great job capitalizing on those errors. You know, one try came from a, you know, Andy Ellis got caught, unexpected tackle, fumbled the ball. Ross Neal read it in for a try. I mean, it was that. It was just that sort of game for New York for almost the whole game. Um, but the last, you know, ten or fifteen minutes, New York clawed their way back, took the lead on a penalty kick. The, the game ended with. Matt Turner having a chance, uh, you know, Seattle had missed two or three penalty kicks throughout that game already. Uh, I think it was Joyce had been kicking those 
Um, and then at the last, at the death, Seattle got a kickable penalty, maybe 40 meters out, pretty straight on. Uh, and they gave it to, they gave the opportunity to Matt Turner, who, uh, who pushed it. And uh, so New York hold, held on for a very ugly win. I mean, this, I think, was the worst they'd played all year. Um, so always good, I guess, to get a win on a bad day, but uh, definitely not a confidence-inspiring performance for New York. For Seattle, you love to see the enthusiasm, you know, the, the fight, given how far behind they've fallen in the standings. And I'm sure they appreciated being home. I think with this type of energy, you know, I think they keep it up at home. I think they'll do a little better. I mean, they'll they'll get some wins, I think, throughout the course of the season if they can keep up that home intensity. Um, they're, yeah, they're probably not going to be a playoff contender, but, uh, you know, they have stuff to work on. They have a, a home crowd that loves that team, so you always like to see that crowd uh, get rewarded for their passion. Yeah, um, you know, when, when it comes to, you know, the, the the work rate between these two and the and, and especially like you said, Greg Craig, uh, the, the the passion. New York has a shot at the playoffs. Seattle at this point, I think, is just trying to run out the clock on the season. Um, and I, I don't want to say that like too seriously because I understand that all those players are trying their absolute darndest. Um, but there's clearly been some sort of disconnect uh, with the, within the Seattle squad. Um, and a, there's, a, there's been a lot of games that have kind of come down to them just missing out on missing out on the little things. Like you said, there, there was two or three missed penalty conversions by Seattle. Um, and the, the final score was, what, two, two points ultimately decided? That's a victory right there. And I think you can probably find one or two other games so far this season that might, you know, be along the same lines in one or two more victories for, for Seattle, you know, like on, on the season, they might have a realistic shot at the two seed in the West. Um, at this point, nobody in the league is mathematically eliminated or guaranteed a spot in the playoffs. But I think Seattle and San Diego um, can kind of, you know, start, start their vacation plans in terms of uh, when the season ends. Um, but Hey, you know, there's always, there's always the chance that something surprises us. Right. <laughs> so so be, be, this being, this was Seattle's uh, first game back home. Do you guys think that made a difference? It's really seen to make a difference in their, in like, their spirit. I mean, they, they, they played with a ton of enthusiasm and yeah, you know, they were kind of being the bullies. Yeah. You know, whereas I felt earlier in the year, they were mostly getting bullied, you know, I remember that game. I think it was against Toronto, probably because it was like fifty to nothing. But I think it was Toronto, where it was like they were carrying balls into contact, and Toronto was just taking the ball from them without even tackling them, like three or four times, like some some really bullyish type of play. They were on the other end of that. I thought against New York. I mean, they were the ones dislodging the ball with big hits, uh, that sort of thing. Um, this year, there's there. I think Seattle are missing. Um, uh, you know, a consistent halfback pairing that can generate, you know, uh, an organized attack that continues throughout the game. I mean, Matt Turner is good attacking from 15, but, you, you know, the 15 only gets the ball so many times. Uh, and then I think Rickard Hatting is a great ball carrier. Ross Neal playing wing looked great. But in the middle there, I mean, you know, the rest of the backs, you know, between Rickard Hatting out to Matt Turner, there's really – not a lot of consistency, not a lot of direction. I think that's really where they fall short. And then uh, two two things from New York side. I know we we kind of ragged on it in our group chat 
What was up with Andy Ellis's box kicking technique? Look, he's an all black. I'm not going to question his box kicking technique. Thank you, Andy, for being on New York and bringing your great all black pedigree. Don't listen to these guys. All right, Liam, maybe you can touch on this one as well. I know it's Craig's team, but we saw um, Dylan Fawcett coming in the 45th minute. I know he only played 35 minutes of game time, but he did enough to make the MLR 15, uh, first 15 of the week. Like, is it is do they need to put does New York just need Fawcett in the game? And if they do, is it sustainable? Well, I mean, Fawcett always uh, has some entertaining exchanges with the refs, um, you know, especially whenever the audio is turned up. So I, w- I would like to have him be played, uh, you know, just for that factor. Um, but in, in, in terms of whether or not they can consistently play him, um, how, how old is Fawcett now at this point? I think he's like on the low side of 30. Yeah, I'm going to guess 29. Let me I'll look it up right now. Yeah. Well, Regardless, he, he he he's a tough sob, um, and he's one of the he's one of the leaders of this team. He's been in the league now for about three years. I think year one was the only was the only year that he wasn't in the league. Um, and well, he, he he actually played with the Raptors that year. Did he? Re- oh shit! Now that you mention it, I think I did. so. Again, he's one of those people that has you know a degree of experience in this league. He understands what the pace and level of play is like in MLR and what it takes to win. Uh, but at the same time, it. It's a long season, and I think um, you know New York is playing a somewhat more of a physical game. So whether or not he, you know they can afford to give him those minutes early on in the season before the playoff push, um, that's something that they're that's a decision that they're going to have to make just based on observations as the time gets there. Um, but at the same time, I think the level of intensity and tenacity for New York definitely gets an uptick when Dylan Fawcett is on the field. Uh, however, he isn't exactly one of the least penalized. Uh, people in the league either though um so i i, I, I it's, it's, it's kind of one of those push and pull type scenarios where i do think there's a lot of benefits to having him on the field but at the same time i think you do kind of want him as your second half punisher i mean i i feel like Fawcett played almost every minute of the 2019 season like they gave him a rest at hooker by making him the eight man yeah, you know, I, I came in. It's hard to even remember a time he ever came off. So I mean, everybody needs some rest. He's a, I mean, he's a lock-on number two starter for the Eagles, I think, at Hooker. So you know, the USA Eagles. So, I mean, he's a very valuable asset. Of course, I think they're going to want him to be their Hooker for most of the time. I mean, unlike a couple of weeks ago when they sat Andy Ellis against Toronto, a move I didn't understand, sitting a key player against a really good divisional rival. This was a, a weaker non-divisional team. It makes sense for me to, you know, to find time to give guys like this rest. Um, but as you observe, when he came in, I mean, he was a tide changer. I mean, first of all, they couldn't complete a line out uh, with, with Rabolo in there, unfortunately. So he, he sorted that out right away, had a bunch of key carries, Um so, I mean, he clearly was a huge difference maker in this game. You saw as he came in. So, I think, I mean, what team wouldn't need, wouldn't want, you know, their top three or four players on the field as long as possible? And that's where he falls, I think, for New York. Everyone needs some rest, but hopefully they find times to get him rest when they can afford to do so. Yeah, I don't know if you're going to be able to do that in the East there, Craig, because it's what it's – it's a, it's only a six point difference between the first and the sixth seed, 
and no offense, I don't think Rennie's going to be able to, to sustain a negative 41-point differential. <laughs> no, well, that's because they'll make the differential better. Uh, no, but yeah, <laughs> I agree. I, I don't see I, – I would be hard-pressed to think that injury aside, Dylan Fawcett, Andy Ellis, Hollinshead, or really or Foden are sitting against any Eastern Conference team right now. Fair enough. So that's it for the recaps. Let's move on to this this upcoming week. Or Honko, too, in that list. Remember when Honko was the best player in MLR? (laughs) (laughs) Many groups here. Different world. Different world. Different world. All right. Now we get to the previews. Liam, you're up with the – what's the highway connection? What is it? Rivalry? So it is the battle of the I-10. Yeehaw. I, I, no, nobody in Houston or NOLA sounds like that. Anyway, so right now Houston is sitting at two and four. Nola is sitting at three, two and one. Two very different positions. Uh, Nola, Nola is looking uh, is is currently sitting in the number two seed of the East. Houston. Th- some of the players are considering looking at those flights uh, for vacation at the end of the season, but not not completely yet. <laughs> so. This is like one of the original MLR rivalries, given some of the clashes we've seen between these two over the past four years. They're two of the original, uh, two of the original seven or eight teams that were in the league to begin with, uh, and not all of those matchups have been completely what you would call civil. Um, anyway, when it comes to the numbers, y- y'all know I like to look at the stats. Nola's way ahead when it comes to points on the board. Uh, right now, they're averaging a fair 28.6 per game compared to Houston's mark of t- only 23 points per game. Points allowed, not any better. NOLA is a whole 10 points better in that category, 25 points to Houston's 35 on average allowed per game. No surprise when I say that NOLA is averaging exactly one more try per game than H-Town at 3.8 and 2.8, respectively. Uh, so Nola's offense, you know, at, at least on paper, is looking like the one who's more apt to score, put up, uh, you know, and put and put up a big margin. But at the same time, we've also seen Nola in a few a few games that become pretty high scoring, going tit for tat. Uh, we saw that, uh, you know, versus New England um, and a few other teams as well. Now, where Houston starts to get a bit ahead in the numbers is in the territory in the scrum game. Territory, uh, Houston's playing right now at 55% compared to just 51% for NOLA, um, by, by which I mean they're playing on the, in the, within the other team's 50-meter uh, mark. Um, so they're definitely applying a little bit more pressure. Whether or not they're finding pay dirt is a whole other question. Um, their win rate in the scrum, currently Houston is leading the league um, in scrum win rate at 97.96%. Nola's margin in the lineouts is somewhat higher, but not entirely significant. So if Houston's hoping to pull up, pull off any kind of upset, I, I know it's only one game that really separates these two, but I'm definitely putting Nola as, the, as having the upper hand. Um, but if Houston's going to hope to get the upset, I'm going to say the set piece is where I'd look for them to take, uh, take advantage and try to apply some pressure especially the, if they can keep up with that territory advantage to t- statistic. Uh, I expect this to be a pretty physical game. It's either going to be very low scoring or an outright blowout. I'm kind of leaning towards low scoring, so I'm going to say NOLA minus two uh, in the battle of the I-10. Interesting. I do not think it's going to be low scoring, but I think that NOLA is going to win. Or going to win. So I'm going to say NOLA by 
six. Um, you know, Houston's gotten better since they acquired Nick Boyer from L.A. Um, I believe Jer Jeremy Lanyards is on his way back. So, you know, they're, they're going to get some help in the engine room as well. Um, but, you know, I think NOLA's the better team here. Um, you know, they, NOLA does have their struggles themselves. Um, you know what? I'm going to be different. I'm going to say Houston by three. All right, all right. All right, Craig, uh, Austin yeah. and New England. Austin and New England. I think this is an exciting match. Both of these teams have a similar – uh, you know, danger style to me, which is kind of a, a disruptive defense uh, that that enables them to win games sort of approach. Uh, of course, it's in New England, so, you know, big advantage there given the travel that Austin has to make. Um, you know, I think, you know, you look at the stats and Austin is probably a little better just, you know, the stats to date, uh, they've conceded the fewest points in the league by a mile. They've conceded 89. I think the next closest scarily is L.A. with 136. Um, but, uh, yeah, stuff and, uh, you know, territory, they're 53% versus uh, New England's more at 45%. Look at the yellow cards. New England has eight yellow cards on the season. You know, a, a pretty significant number. Austin only has two. So stats-wise, I think Austin has a, a little bit of an edge. Um, but I think Austin also plays in a, a little bit of a weaker division. Uh, and I think um, New England is just, uh, you know, they're, they're hungry for a win. They're, they just beat San Diego, who beat Austin earlier this year, um, pretty comfortably. One question I have, I don't know, I don't, I don't think we're expecting Ruben DeHaas to be playing for Austin this week, right? I mean, he's supposedly coming on a short-term deal, but that won't be as early as this weekend. Is that, is that as, you guys understand it as well? As far as I'm aware, he's left South Africa. Let me. Doesn't let me he have to quarantine for two weeks after coming from abroad? That's that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, so we might not see he's him. He's vaccinated. Is he? I mean, it could be. Anyway, I, I'm ex I'm assuming Ruben Haas is not playing for Austin. That is an exciting addition for Austin. Um, so I'm going to say New England by four. Uh, I'm going to go New England minus five on this one. Um, I, I, I'm just really hoping that the that the attack is starting to put it together and not rely so much on a lot of these splash plays by guys like Dougie Fife. Um you know, ho hopefully their, their system is starting to become a little bit more fluid to them uh, in terms of the game planning. So, I yeah, I think New England pulls this one out. But, of course, I might be a little biased. <laughs> uh, just if if they get Ruben Haas up to speed quickly and he clears, you know, everything he's required to, they'll probably play in week 10, which is when they host the Guiltinis. So, they might get him out for that. But uh, as far as this game, um, you know, Man, it's, a, it's kind of a toss-up for me. You know, they're both physical teams. Austin's the best defensive team in the league. They haven't. They've only conceded eighty-nine points. Um, you know, they have they have the territory. Um, they they win the um, lineouts are 
have gotten better since Isaac Ross has come to play. If he's healthy this week, you know, it, might, it, it could potentially be the difference for them. Um, I'm going to go Austin minus four. And then Josh very pro Texas today. Hey, I've always considered moving Austin. So, um, fire and ice cup, brand new trophy on on the line. The iron um, is on the line. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, for those who haven't been um, paying attention or are new to the league, um, due to the border issues between the U.S. and Canada. Toronto has effectively has moved to Atlanta and shared has been sharing everything with the um, rugby ATL side um, from training facilities to medical and nutrition. Um, rugby ATL has graciously shared their resources with Toronto to to help them function in this so far away or far away from home. Um, and so in in the in the spirit of unity between the um, squads, they're expanding a friendly rivalry with a fire and ice trophy cup. Um, according to the press release, you can only win it in the home stadium of the holder of the cup. So that that that's an interesting twist on it. Um, you know this this game is definitely interesting for me. Um, Toronto's a, a high powered squad, and it, Atlanta is a more physical squad. Tries to break you down. Uh, we already saw – we actually saw Atlanta beat Toronto earlier in the year, uh, first week of the season. Um, so, you know, the, the, uh, travel might have had a little bit to do with that. But – and as the teams have gotten up to speed, um, you know, I, I like ATL. They're now my team. Sorry, old glory. Um, I, like their, I like their style of play. Um, Scott Lawrence has been a great coach with them, you know, he's – so that he tries. He gets. He gets them off their two highs, and he gets them up from their two lows, and tries to keep them in that in that middle spot along with Captain Matt Heaton. Um, as far as this game goes, you know Toronto. Toronto's uh, trying to come back from a crushing de- defeat to New Orleans. ATL's coming off a bye. Um, you know, if ATL gets everyone back, I'm gonna go ATL plus, uh, minus two. This is this is a hard one because um, you know, as I said in one of my previous analyses, I think Toronto has a lot of the same issues as Utah and their ability to finish a game in the second half. But at the same time, I, I know you guys like you know, Josh. Like I know I know you're kind of partial to to ATL, but something about that team just seems a bit disjointed to me. Um, and I think the highs of Toronto are a lot higher than the highs of ATL. So I'm going to go Toronto minus three on this one. All right, we're split already. Yeah, this is a tough one to pick. I mean, obviously Atlanta already beat Toronto and Toronto's home, but they're home in Atlanta. So really Atlanta's home. Um, I mean, Toronto just uh, – I think Toronto really thrives when they can get a little bit of a lead and uh, they seem to gain momentum as they, as they get ahead. And I think Atlanta has a good defense that shut down Toronto earlier this year. Toronto's playing better, but so is Atlanta. Um, uh, I'm going to go. I may change this by Super Brew time. I don't have a, I don't have a strong conviction here, but I'm going to say, Right now, gun to my head, I'm going to say uh, 
Toronto by three. Yeah, that's fair. Liam, speaking of Utah, what's up with DC and Utah? What's up with DC and Utah? Let me, let, let me tell you what's up with DC and Utah. So it wasn't until I began researching this game that I realized how much potential it has to be one of the best games of the season. Um, it just seems like they're pretty evenly matched in a lot of respect. Um, either of these teams has a chance to clinch a playoff seed within their respective divisions, and considering what the West looks like right now, that's you know that's actually kind of saying something. Uh, and while a number one seed for Utah might be out of the question, DC is definitely still within that realm of possibility in the East. Uh, in terms of the matchup, the numbers for either sides actually stack up pretty well. So DC is averaging about 32 points a game, Utah at just a barely above 30 points. So two of the higher scoring clubs in the league from either division in this one. Uh, we can expect to see a lot of offense and excitement within the 22, especially um, just given how both these teams play, um, you know, in terms of trying to make that final uh, push for pay dirt. Points allowed, again, D.C. pulls this one out over Utah, 25.1 points to 28, respectively. Uh, but four points is less than a try, so I'm not really expecting any kind of big blowout by the end of this, especially for two teams in the thick of the playoff hunt. Territory, they're neck and neck, 51% of, uh, 51% apiece. Uh, but in the scrum, well, just like Houston with NOLA, this is where the relative underdog might have the advantage. Uh, Utah is posting uh, currently the league's third best win rate in the scrum at 94.4%, while BC finds themselves in the bottom three with 87.5%. Like, Legit, with the way scrum rules are in the 21st century, how are you not at above 90%? Like, for, for God's sakes, the scrum half can basically throw it into his side, but whatever. Uh, Utah also has a slight advantage in the lineouts as well. So, again, for this game, just like Houston, to go against the odds, Utah is going to have to keep the pressure up in the set piece and not allow some of DC's more explosive pieces like Palamo, Robertson, and Jason Vaana Schultz to get their engines revving. So... I'm going to have to go in this one. I'm I'm going to go Utah uh, minus minus one. Uh, just I'm 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 just really hoping that there's more separation in the in in the MLR East, and I'm so I'm hoping that New England gets the victory, pushes DC down a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, another another great matchup. Uh, really tough to call. Um, you know, Utah is just so dependent on whether they're executing on a given day or they're not. I mean, they always create opportunities for themselves and some weeks they just fumble away and then some weeks they're unstoppable. Um, I think old glory is the type of team that wants to get in there and make big plays, uh, to, to, to be the ones that that stop, uh, you know, to stop, to stop the execution. So it's in Utah. That's a tough trip for anyone. Tough to play at altitude, but uh, Old Glory also can't really afford to lose. I mean, they're in last place. Uh, yeah, they're they're falling out of. They're at risk of falling out of the hunt in the East, uh, whereas Utah has a little more breathing room, I think. So I'm gonna say I'm gonna say DC by three. Yeah, Utah is in the third seed with 19 points, and they are six points ahead of San Diego with a game in hand on San Diego. And then D.C. is last at 13 points, but they're only 
three points out of the third seed. So, <laughs> you know, it's, it's definitely different. Um, you know, DC didn't actually fly back. Um, they stayed in LA for a couple of days. Then they uh, drove to Vegas. They've been training um, the past couple of days. I believe they'll either leave tomorrow. Yeah, I think they leave tomorrow. Um, they're going to travel to Utah, which I actually think is a mistake. Um, they, because Harriman, Utah is at 5,000 feet. They always say, if you're going to altitude, you, you get in and you get out, or if you can afford it, you go, you stay for like two weeks, which unfortunately, you know, you can't be done in this day and age. Um, I understand why old glory did it. Um, you know, trying to save the wear and tear on the back-to-back -back West coast road trips. Um, well, sounds like a real fun time just, uh, you know, traveling around the country with the rugby guys. Yeah. You know, so it could be, you know, it could, could work in their benefit too. It could bring the guys closer, get them, get them gelling together all uh, similar to LA. If you had to, if you had to pick a comparison, um, you know, Old Glory has the firepower. Um, they just haven't, you know, really shown it in a lot of games. Uh, Utah certainly has the firepower as evidenced by their last game, uh, scoring 50 points. Um, obviously there's no defense when they gave up 43 points in that game. But, you know, it, it's uh, – Liam, you brought up a good point. It could be the matchup of the weekend. Um, I have Utah winning by six, but it could certainly go either way. I like, I like when we have diverse picks here. I don't think we've had one universal choice yet, uh, though that may change with this one. Because <laughs> L.A. is coming to New York. L.A. has not even been denied a four-try bonus point yet, let alone lost – um, they have the best, most points scored and the second fewest points allowed in the league. It's an East Coast trip. Uh, so, you know, for sure, again, the travel does start to weigh down. Um, but not a hot climate. New York has been up and down themselves. Obviously, I'll be out there cheering for New York, but uh, I, you know, if I'm being honest, I would say this is probably going to be L.A. by 15. I just want to take this opportunity to say that Rooney plays in New Jersey. But uh, <laughs> I'm going to say L.A. minus 21. No hotel in New York. Yeah. You know, I, I may have been over-presumptuous with my pick. I forgot that it is a 10 o'clock kickoff for L.A. Because it is a 1 p.m. Eastern kickoff. Um. Yeah, Craig, don't hate me. I have LA winning by 30. Nothing but love for you, Josh. <laughs> just just remind me when I mess up, as as we've discussed. Um, and then for the last last matchup of the weekend, it's the, the best of the worst. We have San Diego and Seattle. Um, you know, this might actually turn out to be a good game, uh, similar to New York in uh, Seattle from last week. You know, San Diego has an attack. They've scored 25 tries, which is third most in the league. Um, I think their problem comes in that they don't hold on to the ball. They have they only have 43 per territory percentage. And um, as Liam has mentioned before, they have below 90 on the scrum percentage as well. Um, I think we mentioned it before um, in our recap, Seattle just doesn't have a halfback combination that works. They don't have anybody that can kick. Um, Joyce isn't bad. I or 
He's not good. He's well, not I, terrible. Wouldn't say ben, I wouldn't say Ben Sima doesn't know how to kick necessarily. But Ben Sima's out though for for Sima. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's, he's out for eight weeks. Um, if if you guys if you guys didn't catch the game, he's out for eight weeks. He had ankle surgery. Um, he is expected to start physical therapy soon. Um, so Seattle's pretty much done for the year. Um, number one pick. Number one picks in their future. Um, what did I? I haven't locked it in, so these picks could change. I I actually have Seattle winning by three. Um, you know they they showed me a little bit. Surprised to find your own score. See, Seattle's done, but they're gonna win. <laughs> hey, you never know. But you know, I, I also make up a lot of bullshit. It's how I how I get by on my papers for school. Um. Yeah, Craig. What do you, you think? Remember season two? I feel like San Diego went out to Seattle, and you know, we I think it was at Seattle in week two or three of season two, and it was like a typhoon. Uh, and it was like they were two of the best teams in the league, and it was such an intense game. You know, now how far things have changed. Uh, you know, this is like the wooden spoon contest potentially, but. Uh, Look, I think playing at home, Seattle did seem to have a new life. It's just hard to know what a heartbreaking loss, like what they experienced in New York does to that spirit. Um, I think they definitely could win if they show up eager to do even better and, you know, still in high in high spirits. Um, but if they're mentally flattened from the loss last week, um and I, I guess on balance, I, I'm expecting the latter a little bit. So I'm going to say San Diego by. Uh, this is difficult. Yeah, kind of like, kind of like you guys were saying, this was like the matchup of the week in like the last two or three years, and uh, now it's just, it's just kind of like two wet napkins is getting. Hit, hit hit against one another. Um, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to go with San Diego uh, minus four on this one. It just I, I see a lot more talent on that roster, and they've kind of proved more capable of eking out a win over you know sometimes better competition thus far, like they did over Austin. So yeah, San Diego. All right, you know, over a little bit normal than. Or a little bit earlier than normal with the rugby talk. I actually have time for some questions, so we only got two. Uh, we'll we'll save uh, Liam's favorite question for last. Um, for for both of you, I know we just talked about Seattle, um, and this is from Life Lug Rugby on Twitter. How many games will they win, and where on the table will they finish? Um. I think they will finish last, uh, but I do think they'll win some more games. I think they'll, you know, maybe they'll have something like a 33% win rate at home. And, you know, most of their remaining games are home. So I think they'll, they'll do better than they've been doing, but I think they'll, they'll still end up in last is my prediction. I think they're going to end up with, they only have one win at the moment, right? Yeah, so I think they're going to split with San Diego and split with Houston. So I'm going to say they're going to finish the season with three wins and finish last on the table in the West. Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll say last as well. I, I'll give them one more. I'll say four. I could because who did they they beat Utah right? Yeah, and that was at Utah, and they get Utah at home. So, oh, 
if if the show Rock Justice debuts, I'd say they move up to at least fourth in the West. <laughs> All right, time for everyone's favorite question, but this was specifically directed to you, Liam, from Rooney fans on Twitter. <laughs> Should you stay silent during a kick? Oh, Lord. All right. I think you, you should be able to do whatever the heck you want, but I think it's more important to, as they say, read the room. If you're at Starfire, absolutely, you know, go crazy and stuff like that. Uh, you know, make, make as much noise as you want. If you're at Twickenham, stay silent. All right. It's, Again, I, I think it's so important for American rugby culture to sort of forge its own identity. Uh, and not only that, I think it's important for rugby to, you know, just drop the pretentious BS and embrace aspects of American sports culture. All right. We are not the UK. We are we are our own northern kind of like northern northern hemisphere you know, subculture. All right. And another, another thing, not every team stays silent during the kick, a plenty of Southern hemisphere uh, teams, especially in super league, in the super league, um, boo the kicker. So I, I think Americans, we have this idolization of anything foreign and that, you know, and that especially pertains to rugby. We have this sense of elitism that, oh, because I'm following the, the rugby tradition set out by our European ancestors with my pinky out, that makes me better than you, you know, American football loving normies. No, it doesn't. It makes you sound like a you know what. All right. I can't really say that. I try to get better with swearing on this show, but I'm not always perfect. Yeah, so do whatever you want. If your if your club's culture calls for more excitement and rowdiness and booing the kicker, then know it, do it. If you guys want to be a little bit more traditional, go ahead, do it. But just don't act like you're better one way or the other because you're not. You are just that dude who wants to who wants to bring more division into sports. All right. And also, as somebody who has kicked in college um, and especially I I drop kicked all of my conversions in college. I know I'm awful at kicking off the tee. I I had plenty of, you know, trust fund babies at St. Anselm and Colby Sawyer in the stands calling me horrible, awful things. And it never bothered me one bit. I was more glad that they were at a rugby game having fun and getting involved and getting into it. So. Yeah, all right. That's that, that's my two cents, and that's kind of all I want to say for the next three hundred and sixty-four days until we're inevitably talking about this next year. Craig, you want to add anything? Uh, I favor cheering in tennis, so yeah. I, I think unless there's some compelling reason to be against cheering, I, it doesn't bother me at all. I mean, I agree with Liam. I guess I think ultimately, you know, you should be a decent human being and respect the, whatever the local custom is. Uh, but in terms of what that local custom is, I don't care. <laughs> you know, I don't care. If you want to cheer, cheer. If you don't want to cheer, don't cheer. I really, it really is the most non issue to me. Uh, you know, I think Castro would probably bring up something about France at this point, um, but I'm not. Um, do you, I really don't care. You know, if you want to be respectful, be respectful. If you want to cheer, cheer. I really don't care. It's, it's, I think, Liam, you brought up the point of, yeah, we like foreign things, but not every foreign culture has the same thing. You know, France cheers, Southern Hemisphere cheers. England doesn't. Do you? Why does tennis have to be quiet all the time? They're hitting the ball 100 miles an hour each other. Who's listening to anything? 
Just play and let people cheer. Bring back McEnroe, baby. <laughs> it, it's, so the, it's so the microphones can pick up the grunts. Yeah, that's what I don't want. That's like the reason they should. That, that's just all the more reasons they should cheer. Running so awkward. All right. So that's the end of the questions. We have officially reached the end of the rugby portion of the podcast. Uh, we will give you some time. <laughs> we will give you some time if you wish to drop off at this point. Um, you can always you can always find us on the socials um, at Earful of Dirt on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You know, watch rugby this weekend. Come back next week. Listen to us. Uh, <laughs> listen to us. Uh, talk some more stuff, and uh, maybe we'll cheer for your team. So we'll, we'll give you about 15 seconds. Y'all want to drop off at this portion? The remaining portion, of course, being in honor of Star Wars Day, May the 4th, which just passed yesterday as we record this. <laughs> Maybe a few days uh, if you're listening to this on a podcast. All right, I, I think enough time has passed. So well, hold on, hold on. I, know they, I saw something on Twitter today. It was like they extended this two days because I, I guess some people are calling today Revenge of the Fifth. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've always done that. It's bro, it's Cinco de Drinko, homie. Yeah. <laughs> like, don't don't get me wrong. Every day is Star Wars Day to me. Leave the fifth one. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, the um, so so as usual, uh, Disney dropped a uh, dropped dropped some stuff on May the fourth. Uh, the most significant of which was the release of the first episode of the Bad Batch. Uh, for those who have been following the new Star Wars canon, the Bad Batch is a follow-up to the end of uh, of the Clone Wars Season 7 uh, series finale, um, which essentially follows uh, the, the arc of uh, four, kind of five, um, genetically deviant clones um, who, who have uh, enhanced uh, abilities in, in certain ways. One is an advanced hunter, one is, has super strength, one's an expert sharpshooter, one is great with technology, the other one is a, a young super genius girl, uh, I guess. Uh, however, Craig, uh, the explanation that I just gave makes it sound kind of corny, but the writing and you know overall cinematography of this show was phenomenal it i i think it, it j- just like uh, other uh, um episodes of the clone wars have done it showcased elements um you know of the gray area in terms of who's right and who's wrong in war it showcased you know um effects of ptsd within soldiers it's kind of expressed the you know the the difficulties and hypocrisies of military code um especially when applied to the uh, delving fascist state um what did you think of the premiere of the bad batch um in terms of the uh star wars overall may may the fourth uh releases i liked it I mean, i'm i'm an original trilogy era guy you know so clone wars the tv show was interesting to me but not over the course of seven seasons not one of my favorite star wars properties season seven i loved of clone wars um Really like this episode though. I think it did really. It, it didn't. It wasn't this mission-driven monster of the week. You know, completely disconnected story. I thought it might be when I 
saw the previews of Bad Badge, it, it does seem to be getting right to the core of the plot and over how Palpatine transitions a republic into an uh, you know a ther- authoritarian you know, they call it an empire or like a fascist state as, as Liam put it. Um, you know, there's actually logistical things that have to happen. What do they do with the army? That was the army of the Republic. How is that uh, transformed into, uh, you know, the stormtroopers you see in the original trilogy? This seems like the first programming that's really getting at that, um, that mm-hmm. transition, you know, we've seen rebels. It's already done. Clone Wars and the prequel trilogy ends and it's just beginning. We've never really filled in that space. Uh, so, you know, exciting era to explore. And I, plus I love, uh, I love Kanan Jarrus as a character who's a rep, primarily a rebels character. But uh, if you're a real nerd, like some of us, uh, you'll notice that uh, the Cal of Dune appearance at the beginning of the episode, that is uh, in fact, young Kanan Jarrus. So you get to see, this version of uh, how he survives Order 66 and how his master is killed by the, the clone troopers, you know, diverges a little bit from the comic book version, but uh, mm-hmm. not in any way that is you know, really overall too different. Exactly, um, and you know, and we saw between uh, what we saw between the uh, the events of the uh, series finale of the Clone Wars versus the uh, events within the Ahsoka uh, novel, how sometimes stuff can di- can diverge in terms of how it's portrayed on screen versus how it's portrayed uh, within the literary canon. Um, by by uh, by which I'm referring to Ahsoka's final showdown with Darth Maul, which was slightly different within the within the literary canon. Um, however, one of the most exciting potential aspects of this Bad Bad show that I really want to see um, is the hunting of Jedi post Order sixty six. Um, we've seen through um, you know through Jedi Fallen Order uh, with Cal Kestesis. We've seen um, you know w- w- uh, you know obviously with Grogu w- uh, in Rebels with Kanan and Ezra. Um, you know, and as well as like in, in some of the other comics. The Jedi didn't all die on the day of Order 66. It was a months, years long process of Darth Vader and the uh, Inquisitors ultimately hunting them down to try to snuff them out to the point where there was only four or five left. Um, and many Jedi even, you know, closed themselves off to the Force and went off and lived on, you know, a secluded planet. So I'm, I'm really excited to see you know, how, th- how this show might follow the progress of some of the more well-known Jedi. Uh, one one character in particular people have been really trying to get more information on post-Order 66 is Quinlan Voss, uh, who was most heavily uh, featured in the um, in, in the Star Wars canon novel, uh, Dark Disciples, alongside my girl Asajj Ventress. Where did that poster just go? Favorite character in Star Wars right here. Um... <laughs> So unfortunately, she's not going to be able to be featured, considering she's dead. Um, but her her lover, her lover, and uh, you know, partner in crime, Quinlan Voss, uh, one of the more interesting characters to walk the gray uh, side of the force, um, is a potential character that I'm hoping to be introduced here. Um, however, it wasn't just the Bad Batch um, released yesterday. Did you did you happen to check out with Teddy maybe uh, Star Wars biomes or Star Wars? Uh, uh, it was like the fly-through thingy. Yeah, I, I did watch, not with Teddy, but I did watch a couple minutes of both of those. Though I did, in fact, watch The Force Awakens from its nap with Teddy. <laughs> Same. Simpsons, uh, a Simpsons Star Wars, you know, three-minute bit. It didn't actually make much sense. But, uh, you know, I'll take it. 
Yeah, no, I, I I thought so. For those that don't know, Star Wars biomes and the other one, the Star fly Wars fly through, through. Like that, yeah. fly through. Um, it was basically just drone footage of Star Wars landscapes, but it was just kind of interesting. So it showed you, um, it showed you the the, the, the like you know the the ATATs walking towards the Battle of Hoth before the battle began. It was just very slow, no music, walking across the landscape. Uh, it showed you Tatooine. Um, you know, in the area around Luke's house on the day that they acquire R2-D2 and C-3PO, um, uh, among, among, another, among a bunch of other planets, whereas the fly-through one took you through stuff like Star Cruisers and Battle Dreadnoughts and stuff like that, and just kind of, it just gave you a, a cool foundational aesthetic uh, for the Star Wars universe that you kind of didn't really consider before. Um, so I thought that was cool on Disney's part. Um, Something you can just put on in the background, I guess, like while you're doing laundry or something like that. And guess I guess there's always a market for that. <laughs> All right, I'm going to give you a couple of prompts of things that could happen in Bad Batch. Uh-huh. And you tell me love it or hate it. Like if it were to happen, you would either absolutely love it. go ahead. Okay, uh, Bad Batch is assigned to protect Luke, young Luke Skywalker, and deliver him safely to Tatooine. Ooh. I'd I'd like it, not love it. I feel like they might be getting a little bit more, a little bit complicated in terms of how timelines interact. But I could I could see it being done well, especially with somebody like Dave Filoni. Well, this would be right as Luke's a baby, right? I mean, he's just born, you know, mm-hmm. shortly after Order sixty six. Uh, True. True. So I mean, this is an infant Luke escaping uh, from wherever that station is where he's where Padme dies. Uh, However, I think that storyline is more likely to be explored in Kenobi, in the in in, yeah. in the upcoming Ewan and uh, Hayden Christensen, uh, Hayden flick. I think I think I'm hoping for that series to give us some Order sixty six flashbacks because we never. One thing we didn't get to see was Anakin killing Jedi in Order sixty six as Darth Vader. If you've read the comics, you've seen some of it. But I think it's something that a lot of people would like to see live action. Uh, what, what's what's another thing? Give, give, give me something else. Okay, uh, we know that Grogu, Baby Yoda, uh, escaped the Jedi Temple during Order sixty six. Mm. So Grogu is, is also on the run at this time. Love it, like yeah, love it or hate it, Grogu appears in the Bad Batch as a character. Uh, I'll take it. I'll, I'll take it. Um, just mainly because, um, you know, Grogu, like in the Mandalorian, explains to Ahsoka that he kind of has very little memory of, of of escaping the temple, and so I can see the Bad Bash taking taking Grogu on some sort of traumatic experience or keeping him some sort of hyper, you know, hibernation chamber or something like that. So, um, yeah, I, I think in terms of riding the wave of the Grogu popularity, it would make sense. So I'll, I'll take it. Okay. <laughs> Omega, as as she says in her very thick uh, Kiwi accent, uh, mm-hmm. Omega. Omega, the character, is Boba Fett's sister and Hated. becomes a adult female bounty hunter that then features in Book of Boba Fett. Yeah, no, I, I hate it. Um, don't don't want that. Um, I don't know. I, I think I, I think I think I think it's kind of clear that you know Boba, um, you know, in terms of the whole masculinity thing wanted the son to bring up alongside him uh i think in the clone wars went pretty in depth in terms of uh you know the fallout 
um, that Boba faced after Django's death. Um, so, so what is your theory that who Omega is? I, I who, who Omega is? I, I think she was. I, I I think that she was a clone created later in the in later in the process. I think she was a failsafe for the uh, Kaminoans. Um, you know, to kind of pass on their knowledge, um, and, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I think, I think she's more of a, more of a play for the Kaminoans than she is for, uh, either Django or Boba. Okay. Yeah. This, this last one then, and this is, this is also, I don't know if you've read Darth Vader 12, I think it is the latest Darth Vader comic. <laughs> this time uh, yeah. that as well. Um, we learn that either through Camino or just through Exegol, that Snoke is a clone of Luke Skywalker. I, I, I kind of hate it just because there isn't really any definitive point in which he could have gotten Luke's DNA. Well, um, so you, if you, for those who have not seen Darth Vader 12, which I assume is most human beings, uh, there is a, a, a page in that comic where the Emperor is escorting Darth Vader through Exegol, showing him his cloning abilities. And he's, you know, she, you see the tanks where in the future movies you see Snoke. And he says something like, I can pretty much make anything here. And you see in a jar a, a severed hand in the cloning <laughs> part. Oh, and the question right, is, is that right. Luke's severed hand from Cloud City uh, that is then used to make Snoke... Uh, so I, that's the that plus now obviously we're spending all this time in episode one of Bad Batch on Camino with the clones, uh, you know. And there's there are some hints in Mandalorian, a lot, a lot about cloning in Mandalorian. Seems like they really want to explain more about the whole cloning thing from <laughs> you know the original trilogy to the sequel trilogy. So uh, seems to be suggesting that maybe there was a Luke hand involved here, but not. Mm -hmm. here. Yeah, no. I, the, the the Darth Vader the, the Darth Vader comics are definitely wicked interesting. Um, there's also uh, the the story arc with Darth Monum that explains a little bit better um, in terms of like how 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 a Dark Force side user is able to come back from the come back from the dead in terms of uh, being able to transfer consciousness as opposed to a Jedi who can come back as a full on Force ghost. Um, the reason I don't really like the whole Luke DNA uh, splicing thing is I I feel like that kind of it, it it goes against the grain in terms of how they try to portray Luke as one of the um you know like as, as the ultimate uh, what's the word for it like counter to his father Darth Vader um, you know obviously like they I, they've been, they portrayed Luke kind of walking on the edge of the dark side in terms of how we how we um, you know, interacting with his nephew Ben Solo and stuff like that, but I also, yeah, I, I, I kind of, I, I, I had originally liked the idea that Snoke was a dark side force uh, Sith acolyte um, as opposed to a full-on clone, um, which is one of the things that Rise of Skywalker kind of ruined for me. Because um, I, 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 I was really hoping for something more along the lines of the Darth Monum story arc in which Palpatine had stored his consciousness inside of an object. I thought the whole cloning thing, while interesting, um, with the whole transformation of you know consciousness from one clone to another, was cool. I, I thought it was just an unnecessary avenue to take. Uh, yeah. Josh, are you a Sith or a Jedi? 
I'm gonna be honest. I have not gotten that deep in as as deep into oh, the lore no. as you guys have. You're just hosting courteously while we talk about Star Wars. No, it, it, it actually it, it's very interesting to hear. You know, I've always kind of like wanted to get more into it. I just haven't really had the time. You know, I know Mandalorian um, has come out, got a lot, got a lot of uh, new people deeper into the Star Wars lore. Um, I apologize, Liam. What is the the Star Wars cartoon called again? Uh, there's the Clone Wars. The, there's Bad Batch, um, and then there's Rebels and Resistance. Yeah. So yeah, I know, I know those have gotten a lot of people involved in too, and I know that's something I'll have to catch up on. I think outside of you know the the main movies, I think I've, the only things I've seen are you know a couple episodes of Mandalorian, um, the Han Solo movie, and Rogue One. Unfortunately, yeah, so. I'm I'm currently really deep into the literary canon. I'm currently uh, reading the second of the Thrawn Ascendancy theory uh, series. Craig, have you gotten into that at all? I read the first of the new Thrawn books. I don't think it's part. I think there's a new trilogy though now, right? It's separate from so, that book. Yeah, so so there's two current canon Thrawn trilogies. The first one takes place with him, you know, serving the Empire, and then the the one that's currently coming out that the second book just dropped is the prequels to those in which Thrawn is a young cadet in the Ascendancy. And for those that don't really know, um, th these new books, like well, uh, the, these new Thrawn books, they're taking you. So the, the book begins with a long, long time ago beyond a galaxy far, far away. Um, and it takes you into a part of the galaxy known as the chaos in which the Empire really has no influence or reach. Um, and just kind of brings you through a lot of these different alien cultures and how they interact with one another. So it's a really cool perspective on Star Wars that we haven't had in a while. Yeah, that does sound good. I, I would like to pick those up at some point. Thrawn is interesting. Seems like that's the direction the Ahsoka show is going is going to be the hunt for Thrawn and Ezra. So, yeah, I, I and I like that first book too, uh, the, you know, the first trilogy where he's serving the em empire. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, I would definitely pick up. I haven't, I haven't, I've only read that one of the Thrawn book, but I've read a bunch. I have a whole uh, Star Wars shelf over here. You can't really see on camera, but uh, I've also I think I've read all the, uh, the, the new High Republic books. Um, which are right well, I, I'm loving the High Republic right now. <laughs> I think it's yeah, they're good enough. Uh, yeah, I, I like the comics better than the books of the High Republic. Um, I, I, I'm yet, I've yet to get to the comics just because uh, there's no comic book shop out here in Lake Tahoe. You have to go to Carson City, Nevada, and who wants to go to Nevada? <laughs> I just get them all on my Marvel app on my iPad. I don't have any mm -hmm. other comics. All right, anything else we should uh, cover? Uh, Liam, balance of the force. Does that mean destruction of the Sith or an equal yeah, weighting of light and dark side? I think it's the destruction of both the, the Jedi and the Sith. I think, you know, it's been touched a lot upon in different aspects of the canon and in legends that, you know, control of the force defeats the purpose of the light side. I think you. I, I think it has to be sort of a benevolent adherence to his to his existence. Um, you know, which was the the at the end of the day was the failure of the Jedi. Um, you know, to think that they could su suppress the dark side, which was the you know the, the suppression of the of of the natural dark side within a person is exactly what led to the fall of Count Dooku. Was exactly what led to the fall of Anakin. Whereas, you know, just mistakes by their masters of thinking that we need to keep them on the right track as opposed to letting them, 
explore what they naturally felt as, as just as human beings in general. So. Interesting. Yeah. Do you think the, the, the ideal outcome at the end of all, uh, when the star war is over, is that mm-hmm. there are no force users left. The force is left just to be its own natural existence. Uh, I mean, you're never going to be able to snuff out force users. There's always going to be children who are born force sensitive, but I think it's going to be the end of the dogma uh, surrounding the force. Okay. You know, yeah. Stuff. All right, what uh, any other controversy we should address? Sequel <laughs> trilogy. Is Ray a Mary Sue? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. So uh, no, I, I don't. There's there's no more evidence to Ray being a Mary Sue than there is to Luke, and that's just is what it is. I mean, think of a think of a, a, a top level athlete. I mean, there's a couple of things that go into you becoming a, a world class athlete. There's your genetics for sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, some people, you know, I tried as hard as I could to throw 100 miles an hour. I trained for years. I did everything imaginable. I cannot throw 100 miles an hour. Just the genetics were not there. Some people mm-hmm. throw 100 miles an hour, roll off the couch one day. They just throw 100. So genetics mm-hmm. is, a, is a major contributing factor, but there's also training. There are people mm-hmm. that have great genetic gifts, uh, but who don't ever realize them because they don't do the proper training. And there's people who train so well, they make a tremendous impact with the minimal genetic benefits they have. So you look at someone like Ray, you know, to me, if she had rolled off the couch, to use the same analogy, and just been the most powerful Jedi, even in, in a world where the, most of the Jedi were gone, but I mean, she was, she was so quickly so skilled with the Force that if it had been no genetics, I would have had a problem with that. Yeah. yeah and, 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 here, no and here's way. the thing is, is she's not exactly, she doesn't exactly like display, like, you know, a cune ability with the force. She doesn't, she, you know, she displays power. She explain, you know, she displays this raw, you know, strength. Um, you know, as Luke said, I've only seen this raw strength once before, um, you know, in, in Ben Solo. It's not like, you know, she's coming out, you know, doing katas and like, in you know, in like different forms and stuff like that with a lightsaber. She's just, you know, kind of like Palpatine style. She was just using brute other, you know, other strength uh, within the force. So, you know, and so you know, like Luke runs around with a frog on his back for two weeks on Dagobah and he's suddenly able to take on Darth Vader you know, after being a farm boy, you know, like harvesting freaking sand and, and, and water for his entire life, Luke, whereas Ray grew up, grew up, you know, as a scrapper having to fight for her life every day on Tatooine. So it's not, it's, I think it's no wonder that she comes out with a little bit more of a natural fighting skill um, than Luke would have had. So yeah, not, not a Mary Sue in my book, not any more than any other main protagonist and any other, you know, classic Americana. Now, now that said, if she if, if it had turned out that she was not a Palpatine, you know, they'd kind of stuck with the I'm a nobody from the desert. I actually then would have had a bit of a problem with that character because then I think it. I mean, that makes a beautiful story in kind of a, an isolation, but it doesn't really fit with what we've come to learn about the Jedi and the Force. I mean, it would. It's okay for a broom boy to be able to move a broom, I mean, whatever. Like there could be natural force. <laughs> gifts doesn't have to be the same bloodline but to be that powerful naturally that quickly and to say that just could be anyone i mean then it almost it, it completely takes away like any value yeah. to being a jedi order it's like oh well, also, you guys aren't even 
you know, someone who's never had any training is already the best of you, and they have no no other reason other than just naturally anyone can be this. You know, um, familial connections have been a theme all throughout Star Wars and stuff like that. From like you know the prequel trilogy, like between Anakin and his mother and stuff like that. The four, uh, the original trilogy between Luke and Leia and Darth Vader. There's always been that patrilineal familial you know connection between characters, and it, you know, in the new trilogy stayed consistent in that respect. Okay. All right. I liked it. <laughs> I Write in and make Aaron make force Aaron to make a permanent Star Wars version. You're full of force, baby. You're full of force. Damn, I can't talk. Earful of force, the newest addition to the Earful of Dirt Media Empire. <laughs> <laughs> Empire. <laughs> Wait, no, seriously, you guys, you guys did. Yeah. All right. If you guys, awesome. have, if you guys have stuck with us this long, we do thank you. Um, you know, it was a special day. Yesterday was May the fourth, so we we figured we get a little Star Wars talk. Um, and you know, we might consider um, doing a random topic every week. You know, or you know, we might ex- more than likely we will probably expand on another rugby tech. Um, um, expand longer on a, another rugby story, but on occasion we might go off topic and uh, we will let you know at the beginning. That way you guys can turn off if you, if you want to, we would prefer you stick with us, but we do thank you. If you have stuck around this long, um, you can always find your full of dirt on social media at your full of dirt on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Um, you can join us on Reddit um, at reddit.com, reddit.com backslash r backslash ml rugby. Um, you can find us all on our on our um, Twitter handles. And that is it. We thank you. Have a good night. Thanks for listening to Earful of Dirt, the Major League Rugby podcast. Connect with your hosts via Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Earful of Dirt. Visit our website at earfulofdirt.com or email us your thoughts and questions to earfulofdirt at gmail.com.